Thank you, Elder Elias. Morning, guys. So uh, I've been doing this like leadership training program for, with this organization called City to City, and the purpose of this program is to mobilize church leaders from different traditions within a city to collaborate together for the gospel. Anyway, one of the most helpful things that I learned this program is that the biggest hindrances to collaboration and progress is the failure of its leaders to diffuse anxiety that exists within the group. Because maybe you have noticed, but anxiety is actually quite infectious, isn't it? You guys probably noticed that most of the time, the most anxious person in the room will somehow drag other people into their anxiety. And the problem is that this can really mess with people's ability to connect with each other, which is pretty important if you want to collaborate, isn't it? Right, so let me give you an example from my life with an incident that happened with my dad years ago. Right, so my dad is a very safe person, right? Like he really values a certainty and security in all situations. He's the type of guy who would arrive at the office at 7.30 for a 9 a.m. meeting. And he wants no chance of anything going wrong or ruining plans, right? Nothing wrong with that. I'm just the opposite. I'd get there at 8.59 if possible. So when I was about to study abroad, and for reasons that we had no control over, we were missing some paperwork for this visa. And because we couldn't do anything about it, we had to delay our travel plans. And this made him really anxious. So he started getting on the case. He would constantly be like, have you called them? Call them again. You should have checked, and so on and so forth. Meanwhile, I was there like, well, got away. So I didn't meet his expectations of how the situation should be handled, and this really annoyed him because he wanted us to have the same feeling, the same level of anxiety, because otherwise, to him, it meant that I didn't sense the urgency of the situation. At the same time, I started to get really annoyed at my dad because he couldn't just chill. And it, this actually escalated into a conflict whereby I basically stopped talking to him and avoided him until the visa was done. Because I didn't want to deal with that madness at that time. Meanwhile, it caused his, his anxiety caused me to be anxious not only about the visa, but seeing my own dad. So in the end, we both got anxious and not even about the visa anymore. And because I was immature and I didn't handle it well, I disconnected myself from him, and this made relationship at that time impossible. Now, we all handle anxiety in different ways, and it's just one example of a situation that we've probably been in at some point. But I think we can all agree that anxiety is quite uncomfortable, and our preference is generally to stay away from sources of anxiety, which is reasonable on one level, but it can be quite harmful to relationships because it can in fact draw us away from people who loves us and we love too. So we need to figure this out. We need to figure out how to manage our anxiety such that we remain connected with each other. Hopefully, the Apostle Paul, whose ministry we've been studying, is actually pretty good at handling anxiety. Like seriously, even secular experts acknowledge this. And we'll be continuing our series on the book of Acts today, and today we'll see a really good example of how Paul was able to diffuse the anxiety of a whole community in a gospel-centered way. Okay, so let's read our text, 
and see what God has to teach us. Taken from Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 16. This is the Word of God. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come uh, inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went, aboard, uh, went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had to finish uh, the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hand of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Brothers and sisters, from our text today, we can see that it's actually possible, especially within the context of a church community, to prevent anxiety from infecting one another. And our text points to three things that would be helpful to remember to enable us to manage this spread of anxiety that the sinful world and our sinful flesh inevitably produces. So our three points. One, the gospel will connect us to a remarkably loving community, family. Point two, who may still hurt us despite their best intentions. Point three, yet we must remain committed to the gospel-shaped life. Okay, let me repeat that. The gospel will connect us to a remarkably loving family who will hurt us despite their best intentions, but we must remain committed to the gospel-shaped life. As usual, please keep your Bibles open and follow along with me as we'll be referring to this text quite closely. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in the Lord's sight. So point one, the gospel will connect us to a remarkably loving family. Last time, we left off in our study in the book of Acts. We just saw Paul have this tearful goodbye with the elders in Ephesus, in Miletus. As we've been discussing uh, in the past few weeks, Paul's final destination was Jerusalem, where he was going to deliver some alms to the church there. There had been a famine, and the church there needed financial aid. 
So Paul was bringing a significant amount of money with him. So the text we just read was the final leg of Paul's journey from what in the modern day would be from the coast of Turkey to Lebanon through the Greek islands by sea and then finally to Jerusalem and eventually to, uh, to Israel by land. Next week, we'll see what actually happens when he gets to Jerusalem. But at face value, right, when we read texts like these, it just seems to be just another travelogue, especially verses 1 to 7. I would probably skim through it if I was going through my personal Bible reading or something, but the cool thing about doing a series through a whole book like this is that we get to see little details that Luke packs in there that are actually pretty significant. And what first stuck out to me when I was studying this text is how remarkably supportive and encouraging being in a community of followers of Christ can really be. There are three things that this text points to that we can expect to see in the church community that makes this supportiveness and encouraging sentiment possible. The first thing is that we can see that Christian communities should be encouraging and supportive because of their radical willingness to show hospitality especially to those who confess of being in the same faith. Like, if we look at all the stops Paul and his companions made on this trip to Jerusalem, we can see that over and over again, it was the Christians and the local church who took them in, gave them shelter for the night, prayed for them, and even accompanied them out of the city and bid them farewell. Right? Just like what happened to Ephesus in the section before our text. And it's not like Paul knew these people before. In verse 4, Luke specifies that they sought out the disciples, meaning that the church entire weren't like expecting them. So Paul and his companions probably went to the synagogues where Christians would hang out and, they would, and try to evangelize and just start connected with them, with the local church, expecting that he and his companions would be met with hospitality. And these people, who would have been complete strangers, were willing to act lovingly to one another just because they were worshiping the same Lord. And that's because we can notice in verse 7 what is said about churches and Christians. And we've seen this consistently in the book of Acts, haven't we? The Christians consider each other brothers and sisters. We're a family. And when, we, when family comes to visit, we take care of them, right? Now, we need to acknowledge, though, that this is not something that is uniquely Christian, right? A group with a shared values and, and, and shared culture often is welcoming and hospitable to newcomers and visitors to the community, right? That's why if I happen to move abroad and meet a group of Indonesians, they would probably be quite happy to welcome me and help me settle, especially if they're also Batak, then they're obligated to. However, what is quite remarkable about the Christian family is that this family is a reconciled one, which is the second thing the text brings out. So Tyre and Ptolemais is located in the region of Phoenicia, which would be like Syria and Lebanon right now. And we're told in 1119 that how the gospel got to those places was because of the persecution that happened to Stephen. And do you remember what Paul's relationship to Stephen was? Paul was an accomplice to his murder. Paul, then known as Saul, approved as Stephen got stoned, it said. But these communities showed him generous hospitality nonetheless. 
Now granted, right, a lot has changed from then. It's been about 20 years since the whole Stephen thing happened. So perhaps a lot of them weren't even around when uh, the persecution happened. And indeed, maybe time has healed those wounds. But you know who was around? You know who was connected to Stephen and probably vividly remembered what Paul did to the Christians when he was still Saul? The guy who welcomed Paul into his home in Caesarea called Philip the Evangelist. Now, you might remember him as the guy who evangelized in, to an Ethiopian and a magician in chapter 8. But Luke here intentionally brings up a specific detail about his life, that he was one of the seven, right? And who was the seven? The seven were this, these group of guys who were ordained basically as the first deacons of the church. And oh, guess who was part of that group? Stephen. So, Paul, uh, so Philip and Stephen were tight, right? They were co-laborers. They were among the earliest worshipers of Christ and they were fellowshipping together when the Christian movement was small and young. And Philip was certainly traumatized by the persecution that they experienced at the hands of people like Paul before he came to Christ and was still ravaging the church. Now that is remarkable. It would be totally human for us to hold a grudge against someone who wronged us like that. A person who should be held accountable for the death of someone who you considered a brother, who you considered family, yet through the gospel, Philip was able to count Paul as a brother. That defies logic, right? And totally subverts expectations. To get over PTSD and bitterness from something as traumatic as that would take years of counseling. And reconciling to the point of brotherliness wouldn't even be in the cards, wouldn't even be on the table. But this happened. Because this is not something that can be done through human effort. Which is the third thing that this text communicates us, to us about the Christian family. Something that is truly unique to the Christian family. That is, in this community, we get to see the promises of God fulfilled. Check out verse 9. Luke seemingly just throws out some random detail about the unmarried daughters of Philip who were able to prophesy. Now, for those of you who think that this is a proof text for the continued existence of prophets, or that this is a proof text for female preachers today, I, and I believe the elders of this church, respectfully disagree and we can have a conversation about that later but what we can agree on is that Luke throws in this detail to emphasize to us that God's promise to pour out the Spirit on all flesh is indeed happening. Remember the speech of Peter in Acts 2 where Peter quotes the apostle, uh, the prophet Joel that when the Lord pours out His Spirit on all flesh your sons and daughters will prophesy. And most importantly, this points to the fact that when the Lord does this, that there is indeed forgiveness of sin, such that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Right? Check out Peter's speech again in Acts 2. So imagine how encouraged Paul feels after all this. Despite his sinful past, despite the wrongs he's done to these people, the damage he's done to that church, the pouring out of God's Spirit cannot be stopped. 
for it was because of the work of the Holy Spirit in them, the community that he once persecuted, was able to show him love and hospitality. And more impressively, they were able to act like the Lord Jesus, who was even better, because he forgave us while we were still his enemies, before we repented. So how validated do you think Paul is after witnessing all this and the, and the hospitality of these believers? And friends, we too can still experience this when we're fellowshipping with the gospel community. Right? We can do this when we're intentionally trying to love and serve one another. And it is in this community we can witness the radical change that the gospel alone is capable of producing. So for those of you who found us because you were here in Jakarta and you feel like you need to be connected to God's people, I want to encourage you that you've done a properly Christian thing. But if there are some of you who do not yet feel connected, shameless plug, you can fill in the connect card on your liturgy so we can connect you to a community of believers in a location that's convenient to you. So feel free to reach out to us. Please give us the opportunity to serve you and embody the gospel to you. But if you're resistant though, I understand. I understand why some of us might be hesitant to connect. Because at the end of the day, alright, although God has saved us and His Spirit is in us, we're still a community that's made up of people who are struggling daily with sin. And because of that, there might be a point where our sins might hurt you, even though what we're trying to do is actually love you. Just point two. The gospel will connect us to a remarkably loving community, a family, who may still hurt us despite their best intentions. So we can see clearly in our text that every church Paul went to he was quite open about his plans to go to Jerusalem. And our text particularly highlights that these churches who took him in as brothers, who loved him and cared for him while he was there, they were actually opposed to Paul's plan. They didn't want him to go because it was going to be dangerous in Jerusalem. And the, Luke, uh, uh, the text here, Luke is saying, didn't show any kind of malice or selfishness behind their disagreement of Paul's plan to go. In fact, in verse 4, it says that entire, it is through the Holy Spirit that the church tell Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And in Caesarea, it was further intensified. Luke tells us in verse 9 that this guy named Agabus, who came from Judea, the region where Jerusalem was, he came all the way to Caesarea to warn Paul. And by the way, we've actually met Agabus before in chapter 11, verse 28, right? He was a prophet of the Lord used to warn people of Jerusalem about the famine that they are now currently suffering. So Agabus wasn't some random guy. Agabus was legit. Not only he was a local of Jerusalem and knows what was going on there, but he was also someone who had genuine spiritual authority. And Agabus wasn't just warning him gently, right? He wasn't just like, uh, you know, Paul, you sure you want to do that? That sounds pretty dangerous. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. No. His desire to warn Paul is so intense that in verse 11, he felt compelled to dramatically enact what was going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. 
binding his hands and feet emphasized that he was about to be bound like an animal about to be slaughtered and that this was such a bad idea. And of course, after Agabus did his thing, the anxiety in the room quickly spread to everybody. People started weeping and it became quite a tense situation. Even Luke, if you notice, and the other companions who traveled with Paul all this time, all the way here, got infected with anxiety and joined the church in urging Paul not to go. Verse 12 says, We and all the people, including Luke, right, urged Paul not to go. So because they loved Paul and they had concern for his safety, the anxiety about the danger that, it, that was ahead that Paul was about to face made what the Holy Spirit intended to be a prediction to be a pro- prohibition. Paul was their brother. In addition to being an immensely important and influential leader in the church, and they did everything short of literally tying him up themselves in order to stop him to go from Jerusalem. And friends, Paul wasn't just being stubborn or disobeying the Holy Spirit by going to Jerusalem. Rather, Paul knew all this. Last week in chapter 20, verse 23, the Holy Spirit testified to Paul personally that in every city, afflictions and imprisonment await. And Paul's been through this before. And if we go back even further, when Paul had just met the risen Christ in chapter 9, verse 15 to 16, the Lord told Ananias that Paul was his chosen instrument and that he will show Paul how much he had to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Friends, this was God's plan from the start. The problem is, the church wasn't able to see Paul's life from God's perspective. They were only able to evaluate the situation through their human understanding. And despite their good intentions, what their anxiety led them to do was actually coerce Paul against into not doing what God had actually called him to do. Behaving as if it would hurt them if Paul obeyed God. And as we saw in verse 13, this broke Paul's heart. Right? It's like when Jesus told his disciples that he was about to be crucified. Peter had the audacity to rebuke Jesus, God incarnate, the Messiah, the Savior of all mankind, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this will never happen to you. What did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So I think it's not to say it's not too harsh to say based on these words of Christ that since we are limited and sinful human beings that even our good intentions can lead us to act satanically discouraging even breaking the hearts of those who are trying to be faithful to God because even the people with the best intentions are people at best I experienced this personally when I was being called into ministry, right? There were genuine Christians, right? People who I would be shocked if I didn't see in heaven and even my own family trying to discourage me from ministry. How will you make money and become independent? 
my family asked, you don't seem like the pastor type. My post-Christian friends, my close Christian friends, mind you, passive-aggressively commented. There were even those who told the elders of the church that it was basically a mistake to hire me. And I admit, I'll be the first to admit, that this was totally justifiable. I had to go a long way before I was worthy of being called someone, worthy of being called servant of God. And even now, to be honest, I don't feel like I deserve being up here or that I earned it by any stretch of the imagination. And I also acknowledge that all of these people had good intentions, perhaps even Holy Spirit-informed intentions. My family wanted me to be self-sufficient. My friends wanted me to succeed, right? And even they were perhaps concerned about the well-being of God's church, right? Nothing wrong with that. So while this anxiety towards my own good and the good of the church might come from a loving and even Holy Spirit-informed place, yet how it was communicated and how it was handled was really harmful. It led me into a really dark place. I was so discouraged. I questioned my calling, even my faith. I was really hurt by these judgments. And there was even a point that I wasted my life going to four years of seminary and not being ready and called to ministry. It was a dark place, guys. So spreading anxiety is really dangerous. Thank God, though, that over time and through the internal work of the Holy Spirit and faithful Christian brothers and sisters who are around me, the Lord assured me that at least for now, He wants me to do this, which kind of helped silence my self-doubt. But nonetheless, I want to express that it's really hard not to be anxious because God can call the most unexpected people like Paul or call us to do some of the most uncomfortable things like suffer or even go to prison. And the unexpected and uncomfortable are sure causes of anxiety. However, ideally, the family of God can be a place where people are not doubted and discouraged to serve God, rather encouraged and equipped to do so. So let's all, rather than spreading anxiety by imposing on others our expectations and passing to them our limited human judgments, we don't know what God has in mind for a particular person. But we do know that the Holy Spirit is working with each and every believer, sanctifying them, leading them to glory. Hence, the appropriate disposition that we should have for every believer is to assure them of the Holy Spirit's work and to facilitate this Holy Spirit work in their life, leaning on the work of God and not our understanding. And again, guys, I totally understand that it's super hard to manage anxiety because we all tend to be reactive when we're really anxious. We don't think about what we're doing. And when we're reactive, we often behave in a way that inadvertently spreads anxiety. So while it's crucial that we try to manage our own anxiety, what is as important and what we do have more control over is minimizing the spread of anxiety in the room and preventing the anxiety of others from affecting ourselves, right? Which we will see Paul was very good at. 
in point three. The gospel will connect us to a remarkably loving family who might still hurt us despite their best intentions, yet we must remain committed to the gospel-shaped life. Finally, seeing how the anxiety there has spread to everyone, Paul expertly responds to them in a way that both limits their anxiety and then prevents himself from contracting anxiety from them. And there are at least two things about his response that make this possible. First, Paul responds to their anxiety with curiosity. It says, seeing that they are anxious, Paul responds to them with a question in verse 13. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? Right? Now, this is such an anxiety-diffusing response because it accomplishes two things at once. On the one hand, this answer at the same time invites them to connect, uh, uh, invites his community to connect with Paul. And it's at the same time, Paul gets vulnerable and opens up about how their behavior is affecting him. You see, because the ultimate remedy to anxiety is connection. We feel anxious when we feel disconnected from a situation, when we don't understand it, or there's seemingly nothing we can do, when we don't know what's going on, and when we feel powerless, and we feel anxious about a relationship, when we feel disconnected from the person, when we feel abandoned or alone in a relationship. Thus, when Paul answers their anxiety with curiosity, this anxiety-filled community is given a chance to communicate their feelings and be understood while his vulnerability showed them how their reactiveness has negatively impacted someone who they cared about. Hence, getting them to reconsider their behavior, right? So Paul invites connection as it gives a chance for everyone there to be heard and have a grasp on a situation and get on the same page and feel like we're in it together. The second thing, Paul was able to prevent anxiety from infecting him by staying on mission. Right? After responding uh, to them with curiosity, he reiterates, I am not only ready to be imprisoned, but to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if it was me, if it was imprisonment and death I was looking forward to, I would be more anxious than anyone there. But Paul isn't anxious. And the reason for that is because he was connected to the ultimate source of life, such that he was able to be committed to the course. Let me take that back, right? At least I think Paul was a little bit anxious, maybe. He was still human after all, but he was able to get over his anxiety. He was able to resolve his anxiety and this impending scary thing like imprisonment of death by connection to God himself. We can clearly see this in the book of Acts and Paul has reiterated this in his letters over and over again. That Paul is assured that the life of a disciple on earth is shaped like the life of Christ. It is a cross-shaped life. And after this, we will be with Christ after this life is done. Or, as Paul put it tersely, 
in Philippians 1 verse 21 that to live is for Christ and to die is gain you see if we study his life we can appreciate that Paul was connected most of all to God to his mission on earth to God's will for his life for God, to God's sustaining providence to God's glory that he will see and this connection made him able to be secure in his mission and continue on his journey despite the external sources of anxiety trying to affect him. Therefore, since Paul's response to this community invited a connection to himself and reflected his connection to God, after further discussion, the community were able to understand each other and remain connected. And some of them even sent him off to his next destination. And this is possible because they reached the conclusion that would resolve all anxiety. In verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. Brothers and sisters, the ultimate thing that will resolve our anxiety is being secure and connected like Paul and this community was to the will of God. And perhaps some of you today does not feel yet this connection to God and you're projecting that because of the bad things you've done or the good things that you've refused to do that God is actually angry at you and the thought of connecting with God actually gives you anxiety right now and if this is you I tell you today friends that this anxiety can be resolved today because Jesus Christ left the peace of heaven to come to our sinful world and before he was crucified for our sins Jesus himself was anxious to the point that he was sweating blood and prayed to his father to let this cup pass but Jesus stayed on mission he bore all that anxiety for us so that he can climb on the cross so that we don't have to be anxious anymore because Jesus paid for our sins we don't have to bear the anxiety of the guilt of our sins and we can be connected to God first and foremost and secondly to this remarkably loving family here on earth this connection friends we don't have it yet it's freely offered to you right now you accept Jesus as Lord over your life and if you have done that and you are a Christian but you're being pulled into anxiety right now either by life circumstances or by other people I hope that this morning we are able to be reminded that we actually have all we need to manage our anxiety because no matter what happens no matter what we face we can always stay on mission and therefore we can always feel connected to God and what is that mission friends well it's like Paul's mission that we've discussed last week that it is to testify to the gospel of grace by self-sacrificially loving one another only when we are living life on mission will we find this truly lasting peace where we can stop being anxious it's like the confession of syntax that we just read in Matthew 6 Jesus said to us do not be anxious and how did he tell us not to do that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness Amen. Let us bring our anxieties to God in prayer.
Father in heaven, you has generously provided for us everything we need, everything that we get to enjoy right now. And we deserve none of it, Lord. We have rebelled against you and have tried to resolve the anxieties of this life through other means, but you love us anyway and you continue to give us grace that is new every morning. Lord, help us connect to you. Remind us that all that we have is from you and that you will take care of us as you take care of the birds and better that you take care of the grass because you love us all the more and you've purchased us with this blood. Connect us, Lord, to this family that you've given us on earth and give us the patience to bear with one another and not spread our anxieties on one another, but spread joy, the joy and peace that surpasses our understanding that can only come for you. In Jesus' name we pray.